Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. Today's message is Heavenly Vision. We're in the book of Acts chapter 26. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 32, and we're going to look at Paul's speech before King Agrippa and all of these gathered officials. As I did kind of a part one last time, we saw the Apostle Paul. He had uh, been in front of Felix and Drusilla. They were in an immoral relationship, and Paul confronted them with the gospel. And uh, Felix, to do a favor to the Jews, kept Paul in prison. And uh, Paul was languishing there in prison, but trying to redeem his time. And a new governor came in, and he, he was Festus. And Festus immediately went to Jerusalem, and he tried to ingratiate himself with the religious leaders by going down to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And he spoke with them, and they said, hey, you have this prisoner named Paul, and we've got a problem with this guy, and we want him dealt with. And so Festus said, okay, if you've got an issue, you come to Caesarea, and you can bring charges against him there before me. And so they did. But when they raised the charges, Festus was a little surprised because they were charges about religion and about belief in Jesus Christ. And so he didn't quite know what to do with the case. And King Agrippa came by to visit the new governor. And King Agrippa had Bernice with him, and Bernice was Drusilla's sister. And Bernice was Agrippa's half-sister. This was an incestuous relationship. I'm sure it was all on all the entertainment programs, you know, highlighting this relationship. It was the talk of the town very immoral relationship. And so the king came and Festus said, hey, here's an opportunity. King, there's this case I've got. There's this guy named Paul. He's in prison and here's the charges against him. And he laid out the case and Agrippa said, I would like to hear from this man. And so Festus said, okay, tomorrow you will hear. And with great pomp, as Luke paints the picture in the book of Acts, and all the fanfare, the king came in in his royal regalia and his rings and his crown and Bernice was by his side and all these officials came in to this area of Caesarea and probably in a little outdoor amphitheater and they came in with officials and all the stuff, all the bigwigs and they assembled and then they brought the prisoner out and out came the Apostle Paul. And I told you he wasn't very impressive. History tells us he was bow-legged, he had runny eyes, a unibrow, he was balding, and I'm sure people who were there probably did what some of you just did, chuckled a little bit. That is the guy that everybody wants dead and everybody's so upset with him. That's the guy. He may have come out limping and not look terribly impressive, especially in the light of this huge gathering with all these impressive officials and colors, the king and the governor and everybody's there. All the bigwigs, but what have they come for? They've come to hear what this man has to say for himself. And so there's Paul. And Paul, as we saw last week, said these words to the crowd, Acts 26, verse 8. He said, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? He said, I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection. But why would any of you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Do you believe Genesis 1-1? Do you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and he spoke the world into existence? If you believe that, then you should have no problem that God raises the dead. That's what I'm preaching. Apparently, that's what these guys have issue with. But why do you think that's incredible? And so Paul goes on, Acts 26, 9. This is heavenly vision. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile 
to the name of Jesus. And Paul's not the only one throughout history. Many, many people have done hostile things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did. In Jerusalem, not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, uh, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. The language here is literally, I throw through the black stone. When someone was on trial in this context, you would either throw a white stone for innocence or a black stone for guilt. And remember, there was a very significant occasion in the life of Paul where Stephen, the first martyr of the church, basically schooled the Sanhedrin and told them about their history and said, you are rejecting what you say you believe. And they rushed at him and they took up stones to stone him. And as they were killing him, people were laying their cloaks or their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul would become Paul. And Paul was sitting there while they set their cloaks down to free them up, to throw the stones, and he threw the black stone. He said, yes, he should die. And as Stephen was being stoned, as many of you remember, Stephen began to look up to heaven, and he said, I see the heavens opened, and I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then Stephen said, Father, or Jesus, receive my spirit, don't hold this sin against them. And Saul was standing there that day and he saw this incredible testimony of mercy and forgiveness while the man was being killed. He's asking God to forgive the people that are killing him. And Saul was there. And maybe that's what he's referring to. While people were being put to death, I said, yes, they should die. They deserve to die. And he says, and as I punish them often, verse 11, in all the synagogues, this, was his, this became his passion. I tried to force them to blaspheme. Probably something like this. You renounce that Jesus is the Messiah or you will be locked up or you will die. This is happening today. But think about it. The man that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament letters, the man that changed the world by gospel preaching was a man who hated Christians and hated Christ. Sometimes we think God can never use me. I mean, my past is so shady. I've made so many mistakes in my life. Are you kidding? Look at one of the chief spokesmen of the gospel. He was there locking up Christians. He hated Christians. He wanted them killed. He wanted it gone off the face of the earth. And this is the man that God decided to use to change the world. There's hope for all of us. Amen? You know, sometimes you think, I've made too many mistakes. Uh, you know, God can't use me, but he can. And being furiously enraged at them, look at the end of 11, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul says in 1 Timothy, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. How many nights do you think Paul had regrets? How many times do you think he saw the faces of men and women that he had locked up in prison? How many times do you think he replayed the stoning of Stephen and maybe other people that he saw die, that he said, yes, they ought to die, and he saw their faces? Man, he had a lot of regret, I'm sure. 
but he's also the man that wrote in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He'd experienced that mercy and grace of God. And it was a surprising grace because you would think that maybe God would just take out Saul. If Saul was persecuting the church, maybe he would just take him out of the way or take his life. But no, Jesus confronted him on the road to convert him. And while enraged, he thus engaged, this is verse 12, while thus engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king. Now remember, there's this huge assembly of people listening to him. I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. That's a bright light. Shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I don't know if he was riding a horse, but he fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, a double call here, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now a goad was an implement they would use. It was a wooden post. They would sharpen the end and they would use it to prod an ox to get him moving to plow the field. And if he wasn't moving, they would poke him with a goad. And so if the ox would kick against the goad, guess what? It would cost him his own flesh. The word goad is plural. There are goads here. And Jesus on this confrontation on the road says, If I can paraphrase, why are you making it so hard on yourself, Saul? You see, it seems that God was chipping away at Saul for a while. Maybe it was the memory of Stephen. Maybe it was other Christians who had testified of grace and mercy before him. Maybe it was the Lord speaking directly to his heart and convicting him. And he was feeling goaded. But every time maybe he was getting close to surrendering his life or considering Jesus, he would kick against now. That can't be. And every time he kicked it, it took another chunk of his own flesh. That's the picture. And Jesus says to him, it's hard for you, isn't it, Saul? Why do you keep fighting me? You know I've been speaking to you, and may I ask you, why do you keep fighting God? Fighting God is a losing equation. I don't know if you've noticed. He will win. And he has a good plan and purpose for your life. He has heavenly vision for you. Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? Every time you persecute my people, you do it, Jesus says, to me. I take it personally, Saul. And with the word Saul, Saul, it reminds me, if you would go to the book of Exodus, of Old Testament calls that came from God to different leaders when he would call them into service. For example, if you're a note taker, write this down for your notes. 1 Samuel 3, 10 and 11, the Lord came and stood and called as at other times to Samuel. And he said, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for thy servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. What you want is Exodus 3. We'll start in a second. This is Genesis 46. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I want you to see that in the Old Testament, Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. When God came and called people, he would call their name twice. And here in this account, in Exodus 3, let's follow it. Now Moses, verse 1, Exodus 3, was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire. The angel of the Lord there in the Old Testament, the consensus of scholarship is that's Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. That's the second person of the Holy Trinity showing up in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord, see the one, the angel of the Lord is the Lord, saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush, and he said to him, notice, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. I just want to pause for a second. Sometimes when we're going through something, we might think, God, are you even aware of what I'm going through? How long did the children of Israel suffer bondage in Egypt? 400 years years. Now God said he was aware of what they were going through, but God had perfect timing and a perfect plan. But sometimes when we're going through stuff, we say, God, do you know what I'm going through? Are you aware of my sufferings? And I will say to you, yes, he is. He knows what you're going through. And so I've come down to deliver, verse 8, to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Coronite, just kidding, and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Look at Exodus 3, verse 10. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you might bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Look at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now go back to Acts 26. Paul has been confronted by this light, brighter than the new day sun. He is an expert in the Old Testament. He's seen this incredible light. He's fallen to the ground. He's heard a voice call his name twice. Do you think that Saul might have been thinking back to the call of Moses? Moses, Moses, Saul, Saul. Look at the next verse, Acts 26, 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? Now, do you think that Saul knows he's been confronted by God? I think he has a pretty good idea. He has been confronted by a light that's brighter than the sun. He's fallen to the ground. He's heard a voice in Hebrew speak his name twice. And he's listening, and he might be thinking back to Old Testament accounts, maybe specifically Moses, and he says, I have a feeling, if I could paraphrase, that you're about to speak some words, that I'm supposed to do something, and what is your name? (laughs) That's what Moses asked. And the reply was, I am. Not I have been, not I will be, I am. I am the existing one. I am the living one. And Jesus claimed that name in the New Testament. 
Before Abraham was, I am. Unless you believe that I am, John 8, 24, you will die in your sins. He was hearkening back to the Exodus account. And Paul, I think in the fashion of Old Testament prophets called by God, said, what is your name? Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I want you to see, Bible students, this is one of the stronger deity passages in your Bible. This is a New Testament call from God to his man saying, I have a mission for you. Stopping him in his tracks and calling him. And when God gets a hold of your life, he doesn't save you just so you're saved, although that is part of his plan. He's got a plan for you. He's got something for you to do. After all, why would he leave you here if he didn't? If heaven is all that it's spoken to be, why not just take us immediately there the moment we get saved? No, God has a plan for our lives. What is the plan, you might ask? Here is what Jesus told Saul. He said, arise or get up, 16, and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. In other words, I'm going to come to you again. I'm going to show you more. And when Paul talks about the gospel, he says he received it as a direct revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Galatians chapter 1. I did not receive it from man. I received it as a direct revelation from Jesus. The NIV says, this is not something man made up. Some of you may wonder, why does a man stand behind a wooden pulpit and preach this Bible with the kind of authority and passion he does? tell you why because the message comes from heaven Paul didn't make it up Paul was Saul at the time and he was going to destroy the church and he was called and he was commissioned by Jesus Christ his message is from heaven if you wonder about the New Testament the man that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament letters he received direct revelation from Jesus himself God called him just like he called Moses just like he called Jacob just like he called Samuel and he gave him the gospel That's where it comes from. It's not made up by man. It is the saving message of God who came. And what's amazing about the message is that God became a baby in Bethlehem, grew up and lived the perfect life that we could never live, died on the cross, rose from the dead, all in the history in which we live. Why? Because God loves us. Because God has a plan for us. And he says, get up and do what I have called you to do. Verse 17, I will deliver you From the Jewish people, it sounds like it's not going to be smooth sailing from the beginning. Paul knew this. And from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul would need to be delivered over and over again, much like Moses when he first went and told the people of his mission. There wasn't a total buy-in. There was some rebellion. Then there was 10 plagues. Then he led the people out. Then the Egyptian army was coming and they were trapped by the sea. Have you led us out here to die? Weren't there enough graves back in Egypt? Just stand still. And watch the salvation of the Lord. And open, God opened the sea with, remember last week, the blast of his nostril. Oh, I love it. Right? And there it goes. And then they passed through on dry ground. And then the Egyptian army tried to follow. And guess what? The sea covered them. And if you read Exodus 15, there's a worship song all about the sea covering the Egyptian army. And archaeologists, by the way, have seen chariot wheels in that area. They can't move them because they've been there for so long. But there's evidence of the sea, of the crossing of the Red Sea. This is in history. 
and I'm sending you, and it's not going to be easy. And you might say, well, that's fine for Paul. That's Paul's call. No, Paul's call is your call because he's articulating the gospel, and he says, follow me as I follow Christ. His heavenly vision is ours. This is what we do as a church. Yes, we do practical ministry. Yes, we try to adopt and feed the poor and do all of that, but our first responsibility is to share the truth of the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it do for people? It's encapsulated in five points in verse 18. Number one, I want you to open their eyes. Have you ever spoken to someone about a different subject or maybe they were naive on something and after you explained it to them, they said, you really opened my eyes on this subject. Ever had that before? Maybe, maybe you said that to somebody else. That's what the church does. Many people don't know their under the judgment of God. They don't know what the power of sin is. They think that their good works will outweigh their bad works. They think that someday they're going to have a cup of coffee with a bearded figure up in the heaven somewhere and they'll negotiate or they'll say why they didn't fully commit to Christ. No, God dwells, listen, in unapproachable light. Our God, the book of Hebrews says, is a consuming fire. If you want to know his power and holiness, go back and read the account where Moses goes up on Sinai to get the law. Fire comes down. God says, if anybody touches the mountain, they're dead. Which mountain do you want? Mount Sinai, the mountain of law, or the mountain of mercy? I know which one I'm choosing. I'm running to the mountain of mercy. I'm running to Calvary. I'm running where Jesus Christ paid for my sin. I want you to open their eyes. Look at the second part of verse 18. To turn, that they may turn from darkness to light. And when you think of these words, think of the negatives. Unbelievers are blind. They are in darkness. They are under the dominion of Satan, but I want you to move them from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Unbelievers are unforgiven. If you have not appropriated the sacrifice of Jesus by believing in him, you are still in your sin. But the good news is the word forgiven here is a thesis in Greek. It's literally the picture of the scapegoat. God has put our sins on Jesus and he's taken our sin away. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. But we must put them on him, if you will. They're already on him, but we must appropriate it for ourselves. Notice that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified. The word means set apart uh, for service and to God by faith in me, that is, faith in Jesus, so unbelievers have no inheritance. Well, they have no heavenly inheritance. You see, where they're headed is not heaven. These are the aspects of the gospel. And so Paul says, this is what he commissioned me to do. I was obviously an enemy of the gospel, but now I'm in the eye-opening business. I'm a preacher that people might move from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. This is my life. This is what I preach now. Jesus said, he who follows me will not walk in darkness. He will have the light of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Everyone who believes in me may not, that believes in me may not remain in darkness. And darkness is Satan's dominion. Satan's power, Satan's authority is all there. That's where unbelievers are. They may not know it. They may not realize it. But they are walking in darkness. And here's the picture. It's, it's as if an unbeliever is walking towards a cliff they can't see because they're in darkness and they're walking right toward the edge and Christians are supposed to turn the light on and help them turn around away from judgment, away from the fall, and turn back to their creator through Jesus Christ. That's the picture. 
And so we say to people, turn. Why do we say turn? Our oh, repentance is an old church word. We don't want to hear that kind of stuff anymore. No, it means turn. You're heading for the cliff. Stop and turn. Do you see the meaning? Turn away from perishing and turn to God. And so consequently, 19 King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I think Paul's saying, what would you do, king? What would you do if that marvelous light appeared to you? What would you do if God called you? I think you would obey. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Amen? If you call him Lord, you obey what he says. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. After Festus questioned Paul's sanity, saying your great learning has made you mad you're out of your mind and Paul said no I speak the words of sober truth he then turned to King Agrippa and you know Paul had preached a radical sermon to King Agrippa he had preached truth to King Agrippa he had preached he had preached his experience with the Lord Jesus Christ his own personal conversion story and he now turned to King Agrippa and as he turned to the king he said you know the king knows about these matters I speak to him also with confidence. Um, Since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, this hasn't been done in a corner. And then he turned it to the king. You see, folks, it's one thing to be a spectator. It's one thing to listen in and kind of take in a story. It's quite another thing when the question and the spotlight is turned to you. And Paul did just that as a, I think any evangelist would do. He said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And Agrippa replied, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian? I think this is something like this. In such a short time, do you think you can persuade me to be a Christian? And other versions have it. You almost persuade me to become a Christian. I just want to address something really quick. And I think there's such a category. And here it is. Are you an almost Christian? Have you almost been persuaded? You say, oh, you know what? Man, that's compelling. Man, what a story. I mean, oh, yeah, that resonates with me. I can see how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. I can see how this story is true. I can see how the disciples, the apostles were transformed. This, this couldn't be, have been spread by a bunch of fearful apostles. I can see a man who was an enemy of Christianity becoming its chief spokesman and willing to die for it. Man, this stuff is true. But you know what? If you say, I'm almost persuaded, folks, not good enough. You have to believe. That's what Jesus is going to ask you to do, to place your trust in him and to believe You know, as you look at the the word for faith in the Bible, it means to entrust, to entrust your soul, to entrust your life to Christ. Don't be an almost Christian. Be one who says, you know what, I do believe. I do believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one's coming to the Father except through him.